Morning. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Excellent. It is so good to see you. Um, it has been way too long. Uh, we, my family, uh, sends their greetings. Um, we have kids' activities this afternoon in Nashville, and so they were not able to come with me, but we really miss Daylight Church, uh, and we really miss Louisville, the realville, right? Um, we, uh, I wanted to just kind of share this morning on a uh, different kind of ghost story. Um, there was this documentary that came out back in 1984, and it was really, really fascinating. It was about uh, a group of friends that were all fired from their jobs at Columbia University, kind of all around the same time. And what they started to do is they started to help people around the city that were dealing with paranormal activities. And what they did is they decided they were going to kind of like set up a home base and they bought this um, kind of old fire station and they retrofitted this like old ambulance. I don't know why you're laughing. This is like really serious. Um, and then there was like this disembodied soul that they befriended. They called him Slimer and his kind of things got weird with that. But then they ended up saving the city from a ghost that became the State Puff Marshmallow Man and was like trying to destroy New York City. And some people say that it was a movie, but it really looked very real. And so <laughs> I wanted to talk about a different kind of ghost story. See, we all have ghosts that haunt us. Things that maybe we're trying to avoid in the future, anxiety that we're trying to push away, or, or maybe something in our past that we keep trying to run away from, but yet it keeps coming back and back and back. I want to take you to the book of Matthew in chapter 12. Um, and this is really where we're going to be much of the day. I'm going to read one verse at the end in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 but uh, to wrap things up. But I, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. And I'll, I'll put all of this up on the board. It simply says this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, this is like, hits you in the face, right? He answered. So the Pharisees are asking him this question. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Ouch. Holy cow. But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days, oops, for as Jonah was three days, and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Or they, or sorry, um, I think that should say for they, not or they. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes, oops, 
When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. The final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Anybody want to trade places with me here for a second? It's like this really weird, complicated, messy portion of Scripture. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees with the disciples looking on, and they're talking about Jonah, and they're talking about the queen of the south, and then they start talking about a house with demons. I want to start off by just sharing a little bit of the story of Jonah. See, in in the book of Jonah, uh, the storyteller tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And I don't know if you've ever had the word of the Lord come to you. I, I, I could say that I have, but it wasn't like this audible voice. Um, there, there wasn't this booming voice from heaven. There wasn't this, you know, crazy, profound experience that just blew my mind. It was really just this inner prompting. I felt this deep desire that I was supposed to do something, go somewhere, speak with this person, not do this. Maybe you felt that before. It's, it's, it's this inner prompting. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're supposed to go in one direction. And we've all been there. Sometimes we choose to go in the complete opposite direction. This is the story of Jonah. What the story says, and I'm going to just kind of summarize it for you. It's four chapters. You can go and read it on your own. It's, it's called the book of Jonah, so it's really easy to find. Um, what the story says is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he was to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which is their mortal enemies at the time. And he's supposed to go, and he is supposed to preach judgment over this city. Now, when a prophet goes to preach judgment over a city, what they are doing is giving an opportunity for the people of that city to change their direction and do what's right and just. So they have an opportunity. It's not just about obliterating everything. It's about giving people an opportunity to change course and change direction. Jonah wants nothing to do with this. So he gets on a boat and goes in the complete opposite direction. If you were to look at it on a map, and and most scholars have no idea where these places actually are, but if you look on a map, theoretically, it is in polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Jonah is supposed to go over here, and instead he goes over here. We all get the picture, right? So Jonah is asleep on this boat, and this storm hits. And this always fascinated me about the story. He slept through the storm. Apparently, he has no problem 
disobeying what the word of the Lord spoke to him and going the complete opposite direction. And he's apparently sleeping so well that he doesn't even wake up in the middle of a storm on the sea. The sailors that are all a part of the boat, they start throwing stuff overboard and and they're trying to figure out why is this storm happening. And and so they come to the conclusion, they, they draw lots and they come to the conclusion that Jonah is the problem. So they cast him overboard. Jonah had told them about, you know, what he, he had ran the opposite way, and they throw him overboard, and immediately the sea is calmed. Meanwhile, Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, is there three days, and then spit up on land, and he decides at this point that it's probably a good idea to go to Nineveh. In Nineveh, Jonah starts preaching judgment. And again, this is just a very brief overview summary. And his worst possible scenario happens. I think Jonah really wanted God to just destroy the city. I mean, these are the arch enemies of Israel. These are a group of people that have been punitive and killed Israelites. Do you think really at its core, Jonah was really happy about going there? No, he wasn't. He went the complete opposite direction. But I think he went going, you know what? These people are never going to change. So I'm going to preach judgment and I hope God just destroys the entire city. But the worst possible scenario happened. Jonah's worst enemies all repented. The entire city was changed. And the reason I personally do not believe Jonah actually wanted the city to change is because of his response goes outside the city, and he starts weeping. He actually gets depressed. And the Lord, when, when the Lord reveals himself to, to Jonah, um, he actually calls Nineveh a great city. So even when the entire city was saved, Jonah was depressed and sad that all of these people were no longer going to be destroyed, that they changed their path, and their futures were completely different. So here's my question for you. What are you running from? See, there are ghosts in the future. For some of us, we we get so overridden with anxiety that we don't do things that we know we should be doing And when we make those decisions, some of us, we're just straight up in rebellion and we're just running away from the things that we know that are right and just and good and fair. And see, when we make decisions in the present that affect our future in negative ways, that always comes back to haunt us. What are you running from? Unresolved issues will always return, always. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. There's a better Jonah. And when this Jonah preaches repentance and people repent, even if they're his worst enemies, he celebrates. He's excited. He's not sitting under a tree mourning that the city was saved. Instead, that's the greatest hope. 
that everyone, everywhere, will come to the saving knowledge of the kingdom of God. Jesus finds himself in an earlier chapter in, in the book of Matthew in a similar situation with Jonah. There's this storm, and Jesus is asleep on the boat. We find out that it's not Jesus that's running scared. Later on in the story, we'll find out that it's actually the disciples that run away scared. They wake up Jesus, and he calms the entire storm. See, there is a better Jonah that is coming. There's a better Jonah that is on the scene that has changed things. So as we unpack this really weird story, I want to move from running scared to exercising demons. I don't mean like exercising demons. Exercising demons. See, any death that does not produce new life will also come back to haunt us. So how do we deal with the darkness? And when we're, we're going to look at in a minute at the book of Ephesians, but how do we deal with the darkness that haunts us? See, we will never escape that which we avoid. The Bible, at its core, is a communal book, and we read it through a Platonian philosophy, right? Individualistic culture that is now crept into every facet of our lives and society. So it's, yes, it's talking about what you and I do individually, sure, that can be applied, but it's also talking about what do we do corporately together? How does this affect everyone everywhere? Um, we will never escape what we avoid, whether it's individually or whether it is corporately. So we find this really weird story, this reference to the Queen of the South. Now, the Queen of the South is a reference to the book of First Kings. It's the Queen of Sheba. And in the book of First Kings, she comes and she visits Solomon and his empire. And what we find in this visit in the book of First Kings, and I believe it's chapters 9 and 10, is she is blown away by everything that she sees. In fact, it was so exquisite that, it, that in chapter 9, it says that it left her breathless, without words. So she has this profound experiences, experience, brings her entourage to see the wisdom of Solomon at work, and she sees everything, and she is breathless. Now, here's what 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6 through 9 said. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I have heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. See, there's a better Solomon that's on the scene. 
just out of curiosity, um, how did Solomon build his kingdom? True, he built it off of the foundation that his father had laid, but he rebuilt cities, he rebuilt Jerusalem, he built the temple, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world, he built his home, which was also a wonder of the ancient world. Is that a spider? There we go. He's just kind of hanging out. There we go. <laughs> so it, I planned that, right? <laughs> Halloween, ooh, ghosts. Ah. <laughs> we'll, we'll pause that for a second. What do we do when wisdom is not really wise? See, Solomon, when he became king, the scripture tells us that he actually sacrificed a thousand offerings to the Lord. A thousand. That was his first act as king. Gave a thousand sacrifices, a thousand offerings to the Lord. And he prayed very specifically for the Lord to give him wisdom to be able to govern his people well. Isn't that amazing? Imagine what would happen if the leaders in our cities and countries and our leaders globally prayed for wisdom like that to be able to govern well. Here's what the queen did not say, though. She did not say that Solomon was maintaining justice and righteousness. It's not what she said. She said, he made you king too maintain justice and righteousness. Now, that might be really small. It's just a word, right? It's just a very small little nuance. But, but here's the thing. Solomon built the kingdom of Israel on the backs of slaves. That's what 1 Kings tells us. He built all of the important store cities. He, 1 Kings tells us that he made his own people um, the armies and the chariot captains. Random question, who chased Israel out of Egypt? Um, chariot captains. So apparently the oppressed have now become the oppressors. He built the temple of God using slaves. One of the wonders of the ancient world, built with the backs of slaves. But see, a better Solomon is here. One that doesn't just talk a good game about ruling and governing wise, but one that actually does when you enter into his pathway and his way of doing things. See, Jesus didn't come to be a part of the political system. He came to, up, to uproot the entire thing. That was part of the point. There's a better Solomon, one who's actually wise. See, we have to learn to deal with the darkness. And whether that darkness is within you or whether that darkness is a part of all of our stories, we have to learn to deal with the darkness or it will come back to haunt us. Hello? Exercising demons. It is never too late to do 
the right thing. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. That brings us to the final section. Holy Ghosts. I'm using that term very loosely. I am not using it in terms of the third member of the Trinity. Pete Rollins talks about this idea of, of ghosts. He's a Christian philosopher from Belfast, Belfast, Northern Ireland. He says, specters are not neutral creatures. Depending on whether we listen to them or not, they will be guardians to the status quo or an invitation to new life. In short, they will be poltergeists or they will be holy ghosts. Can we reclaim the ghosts? See, when we find those things that haunt us, whether it's things from the future or whether it's things from our past, when we face those things, it becomes a holy part of our story. We might call it a testimony, right? The worst things in your story become the best things. Good news for somebody else. It's amazing, isn't it, how that works? How the worst things that we ever have done become the best parts of our story because they are now wholly reclaimed, holy ghosts. So how do we reclaim the ghosts? Is it possible to reclaim the ghosts we find this weird section at the end of, of this where it says an impure spirit comes out of a person. It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the final condition is, of the person is worse than the first. Now, something that we need to understand about this little passage right here. Excuse me. Now, this could be referring to demonic oppression, demonic possession. I think if we just brush it off as that, we're going to miss some great truths here. Um, Herod was rebuilding the temple. And what he was doing is he was trying to win over the people. And so he made this amazing temple, and he, he rebuilt the temple in, in the time of Jesus, and it was unbelievable, and, and you know, he, he really just wanted to get goodwill. It was beautiful. There's one problem. On the outside, it looked great, but on the inside, it was empty and meaningless. We've all had those moments where in our own strength and our own power, we tried to change something in our lives. We cleaned everything up, and we thought we dealt with it. The demon was gone. We exercised the demon. And so we just kind of start to move on. But we don't really do the internal work, right? We don't really change much of anything. We just cleaned everything up. And then it comes back, and it's worse than before. See, part of what we see at the end of this little section is almost the cycle of addiction, isn't it? You try to deal with something, you clean everything up, and then it comes back, and it's even stronger, seven times stronger than it was before. And maybe you're really, really strong, and so you're able to deal with that. 
And so you clean it up again, but then it comes back, and now it's 49 times as strong. Right? You ever been in that, that cycle that just keeps going, and it keeps getting more and more and more difficult to exercise the demon each new time? See, if we don't replace what was living in the house, we're just going to keep going through the same cycles. We can't just clean up the outside, make everything look all pretty and nice. We have to do the deep interior work and change the way we are living. Replace that emptiness with something that will actually satiate or fill us. I think Paul in the book of Ephesians um, gives us a clue. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, he says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Anybody feel that? You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather do what? Expose them. Expose them. At some point, we got to deal with our stuff. We can't just bury it. We can't just pretend that it's not there. That goes for us individually. That goes for us corporately. We have to deal with our stuff. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness Rather, expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. I want you to think about that for a second. I'm going to go back to this. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. We kind of blush a little, don't we? It is shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. Holy ghosts. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will be in you. Friends, there is a better Jonah that is here. There is a better Solomon that actually leads with wisdom. And the choice is up to you and me. We can keep trying to clean out the house in our own strength, in our own ways, in our own power. Or we can allow the transformative power of Christ to change us, to find that new pathway, to fill our lives with richness and goodness. 
we can keep finding our own pathways, cleaning up the outside, making sure that everybody thinks that everything's good. But I love this charge. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine 